I grew up in Erie, near Erie, Pennsylvania, in rural northwestern Pennsylvania, and but I've been here since I turned 18 and fled fled the country. It is a place everyone I talk to, I know a lot of cartoonists who live out here, and everyone I talk to, to a person, they love it. Like, there's a lot of cities where people are just kind of lukewarm about it, but yeah. people who live here seem to be really into the whole experience. Yeah, and you know, and that's really feels like something new. I don't know if it's just age or what, but I remember being in my 20s and everybody just, all they could talk about was leaving, how they're going to scam their way to a bigger city. But I don't know. I think if you've been here, if you stayed here and stuck it out, you know, you get comfortable and there's, there's a lot more opportunity. There's more, you know, Brian Heater wouldn't be flying in to look at robots 20 years ago. That's the other thing too, is I mentioned to a few people that I was coming here and it like, Really, Pittsburgh? <laughs> like I was going to Robocop land or something. Yeah. Like it's still, it's very much the impression, which might, might which might be a good thing when it comes to kind of weeding out the shitty people. Right, right. Yeah, this neighborhood in particular did not exist in this It's my driver condition. here was telling me she said something yeah. along like like 10 years ago, how she would not have driven down this or maybe longer. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember when I was um, 19 or 20 and I lived kind of in the neighborhood and Josh Topolsky lived in the neighborhood, and you know he was like three blocks away. And I'd go go to his house at like nine, ten o'clock at night, and my friends would be like, "You're crazy! You got to get a cab. You can't. We'll give you a ride. Don't yeah. walk." It's funny because again, my driver on the way here was just like tell me that she lived twenty minutes outside, and because she's like, oh, "The rent's much better." And I was like, "Well, I just assume anywhere here is going to be better than in New York for sure." Absolutely. But that's a nice thing about living in a in a city like this is it kind of affords you the ability to if you want to quit your job for a little while uh-huh. and start to write books. Like this seems like a pretty good place to do it. Yeah, I mean that's exactly, you know, rent super cheap. I left the Verge and I just write when I want to write about what I want to write about. You know, I probably spend a year not doing anything really, like planning a novel and then you know, taking a nap <laughs> and going on a trip. But uh, now I just, you know, that's, I've written two books in two years. I, you know, if I feel like I'm going to be behind on the car payment, I drive Uber for like two days and I have my payment and my insurance taken care of. And, and I just spend my time concentrating on journalism, which is, I mean, that's the dream. Do you like the Uber experience? I mean, it's, you know, everyone I've, I've talked to, other than the, the, the payment situation and maybe the ways in which the company treats people, uh-huh. like the experience of doing it, and most of the people you meet is genuinely kind of interesting at the very least. Yeah, I love driving, <laughs> and I love driving, you know, I love driving around town and talking to people. Just the act people, of driving. So, yeah, so it's like, no complaints. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. But yeah, I mean, you're definitely working for a company that is yeah. not looking out for you. Invariably, every single driver I have talks about that to a one just about like yeah. how bad the company is this woman was telling me about how she was just railing on the company for the fact that they were doing um helicopter rides they're trying to do helicopter rides in new york mm-hmm. and she was convinced that that was the reason why they dropped the rates that's interesting yeah I, um yeah you know we ha- we're not pittsburgh isn't really you know we haven't seen a lot of the crazy stuff that uber is doing except for of course the robot cars yeah last time i was here it was like this would have been i think right around this time about two years ago it had gotten to a point where it was just so mundane that people didn't really seem to notice anymore which was bizarre yeah yeah it's it's pretty crazy um i have have a good friend who is a bit older than me so he's like 65 and he uh, has been an activist you're 63 i'm six, 68 now no i'm i just turned 44 actually yeah, I share a birthday with uh, George Harrison and oh. Carrot Top. 
Sure. So, the, great, the two great, the great <laughs> titans of the entertainment industry. <laughs> exactly. The um, dark horse and the carrot top. Carrot top. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, you know, my buddy was an activist, and I remember, like, in the 80s and 90s, he would regularly protest outside of CMU, and he was always talking about robo-war. It was like, robo-war is coming, it's all coming he- from here, you know, 20 years later, drones, you know, and, and they seemed so science fiction and crazy at the time, and now it's just like, of course there's a drone war going on. I don't know if you knew him at the time, but was he generally regarded as being kind of a kook? Uh, no, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the 80s, so it was like the fallout of the 60s still and the Cold War. So people were genuinely concerned about, you know... Military-industrial complex. Exactly, and CMU's part of it. But, yeah, the robo-war stuff was kind of like, this does not seem so credible at the time. Yeah. But, you know, you know, he knew people at CMU that gave him, like, loads of documents and stuff. And sure enough, it happened. I think the actual real... Um, concern was the software engineering institute at cmu at the time was doing a lot of stuff with defense not related to drones but related to weapon systems and perhaps nuclear weapons i can't remember so it's always been that connection do you find driving an uber to be productive as far as writing concern i mean obviously you get a lot of time to yourself you Mm -hmm. get a lot of time to think but like do you ever have interesting interactions with people that well, it's, it's funny. Uh, generally not. <laughs> you okay. know? I think, Is it usually people mostly just want to chill in the back? Yeah, you know, and I don't... When I'm riding, I try to draw the driver out because yeah. I'm interested. But, you know, when I'm driving, it's usually like, I don't know, talking about why they're in town or, you know... You're what, like, what can I do to make my star rating? Exactly. And um, don't forget to tip. How yeah. can you say that without saying it? Because if you say it, you're a dick yeah. and they won't tip you. I actually have like a chapter in my novel that came out in 2017, Sirhan, um, it's called. And it, I was, while I was writing the novel, I was getting a ride somewhere in, in an Uber or a Lyft. And um, the driver was a rave DJ named Johnny Chaotic. And he was like inventing, like, he wanted to have like a silent nightclub where everybody wear, or dance club where everybody wears headphones. Okay. And like, there's some kind of like system under the floor that like the bass would bounce, make the floor bounce up and down. It sounds like Johnny Kanek was living in the the early to mid nineties. It was funny because when I was in the early to mid nineties, yeah. you know, I met Josh actually, Josh Topolsky at Raves. We were we were pretty big ravers with big pants, and um, there would always be people. It's kind of like that subculture is acceptable if you're nineteen or twenty years sure. old. But, you know, but you always had these, like, guys that were, like, 45-year-olds that just discovered it and were just, like, really, really into it in a really weird way. And Johnny Chaotic reminded me of one of those guys. But he was telling me these stories, and I, like, I was just – it was so good. I transcribed it into my phone, like, as he's talking. And that basically became, like, a major part of a chapter of my book, like, hanging out with Johnny Chaotic. Because, like, this this novel that I wrote is a – kind of takes place in like in a world where most conspiracy theories are either real or at least like believed you know mm-hmm. believed to be real taken seriously not quite the marginal thing that like may, i guess in the real world they are and it was basically like journalism it was like an act of journalism i i, I did a lot of direct experience went into this novel like just you know change some of the names and- direct experience how i mean were you putting yourself in in the situations yeah, yeah like you know, my, my Uber driver or um, I went to a Trump rally 
and it was turned out it was being held by this group from outside of Providence, Rhode Island called the Healing Church, THC. And um, basically they like were like a weird offshoot of the Catholic Church and they it sounds almost like Pentecostal or something. Yeah, yeah. They worship marijuana. Oh, okay. Oh, the and, THC was yeah, is intentional. Yes, they okay. worship marijuana, and they were and uh, so good, for, good on them. Yeah. And they also loved Trump, and they just thought that uh, Trump was like you know they loved Russia, they loved Trump, and they thought that you know like they were basically like QAnon before QAnon existed, in the sense that they thought that like there was a deep state that was that Trump was going to destroy, and Trump was out to get rid of all the pedophiles that Hillary Clinton put in government and stuff. I was just in D.C., and the, the first thing I said to my friend was, like, I'm going to go to Comet Ping Pong. Yeah. You know, going to go gonna go find the basement, like, mm-hmm. uh, in PB. There's a level to this that it sounds like it predates QAnon. There's mm-hmm. idea that, like, there's deep state pedophilia and that somehow Trump is the antithesis mm-hmm. of that. Do, do we have any idea where all this stuff came from? You know, it's interesting because the more I think about it, look into it, I think it really... Is like people spreading memes on purpose for like disinformation. Sure, you know, like fake news, fake news sites, like yeah. that ro- big Rolling Stone expose about that came out a few years ago. This kind of ties back to the Pittsburgh thing. Not that everything has to. But I had this sense as I started getting more into journalism that it's not that like Pittsburgh is the center of the world, but it's like looking locally is really good ways to find connections to things that are happening globally or, mm-hmm. you know, internationally, you know, and, um, you know, the country is big <laughs> and, you know, Minneapolis, I'm sure has a lot of great stories, although never been there. I just, just find like the conspiracy culture. I started writing about that stuff because I was fascinated with it, but I really think it's becoming like the story of our time just because like, for instance, I can't go to a Trump rally without having it be like weird conspiracy theorists, like, they were dressed in like monks robes and they had they had shofars that they were blowing through and like they were like talking about how like cannabis prevents abortion and just all this crackpot stuff and all these trumpies were there from like yeah. the suburbs and they were just like they were just happy to be amongst them friends and to have signs and mega hats so they were they didn't seem to be like rejecting any of this uh, the saying about politics making strange bedfellows it seems more so the case with Trump than anyone else. I'm not going to suggest that his base is diverse in any, like, meaningful or, or you know, ethnic way, but diverse from the standpoint of the, there's just a bunch of very strange people from different walks of life who are looking up to him for very different reasons. And it is interesting. Did you read the Ronson book about... Uh, Alex Jones. Yeah, them or... He did a uh, Kindle single, I think it was... Oh, no. Right right during the primary, maybe right mm-hmm. after the election, about his experience with, with, with Alex Jones oh, wow. and like sort of watching him ascend to where he is now. Like Certainly from a standpoint of all of these conspiracy people being really interested in Trump, it makes sense that Alex Jones was kind of his biggest champion. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's just weird. I mean, it's just undeniably part of the culture. Like, on the way here, right around the corner, I saw, like, weird graffiti about how, like, pedophiles were targeting Ivanka Trump, and there was, like, an Eye of Horus, like, painted, so some kind of occult thing, and, like, numbers that I'm not going to endeavor to try to understand what they have to do with anything. But it's, like, that's crazy. Like, and that's, like, it's, like, marginal thinking that's, like, somebody's, like, going around spray painting. (laughs) 
that stuff on. That is like a, stuff that on. is like a thing that you would read in a sci-fi book, like right. that kind of graffiti. I mean, Pennsylvania is really interesting from a religious perspective. I don't know, maybe maybe have some insight into this, but like obviously, you know, um, Quakers, the Shakers, the Amish. Yeah. You've got all these like interesting. I don't know if sex is the right word, but you know, interesting smaller religions. I mean, do, do you feel that there's just something like inherent here that kind of attracts? Some of that, again, I don't want to use the word cult to describe any of those yeah. people, but off the beaten path. Well, I think that's largely a product of, like, the religious changes and that were occurring in the country and what they call the burnover region. So, like, upstate New York and northern Pennsylvania and where a lot of small sects and groups were kind of everything from... You know, the Mormons originally started, like, Elmira, New York, I believe, mm. and um, spiritualist churches. There's a spiritualist church near my parents' house up in the northern part of the state that's been around for 100 years. And, um, you know, this was, this was like the industrial center of the United States not too long ago. And a lot of – you see a lot of these, like, weird – almost like science fiction religions. Like, Chicago, you had, like – the Urantia book, which was like uh, a supposedly contacted, like channeled book that like some like geniuses for space entities are like channeling through some guy and they're writing it all down. And that that's actually sounds like the Bible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the space guy channeling through people. <laughs> but, you know, and it's like and, and like the Bible, it's like cutting edge for its time. Like it's explaining the universe in terms of like how old things are and temperature of space and all this stuff stuff that i guess sounded really impressive in 1920 but like now you could actually test out some of these ideas and find out that they were they were wrong and they were just talking about like the cutting edge of whatever science was in the 20s and trying to ascribe it to like an alien or you know nation islam with its uh ufos and everything um that's chicago so that's not this part of the country exactly but it's Kind of the industrial north, northeast. Interesting, even like Sun Ra out of Chicago, too. Yeah. There's definitely some overlap with that yeah, world. absolutely. What's the connection with Trump and conspiracy? Is it is it just the idea that he's an outsider? Is it the fact that like he won't shoot down any argument, no matter how crazy it is? Oh, I, I definitely think a large part of it is that conspiracy theory has always been kind of like in the despot's playbook, the authoritarian's playbook. Um, a lot of work, especially since World War II, because that was obviously such a huge part of how Hitler got power and kept power was by sure. creating enemies and creating conspiracy theories about those enemies or borrowing conspiracy theories about those enemies and um, and spreading them and giving the base something to hate and something to point their anger to. And, um, and I definitely think that's – I don't know if Trump is doing it on purpose or not, maybe a little bit of both, but he's – He's using, like, a very popular, well-known tool among authoritarians. It's kind of in the culture. And it's interesting, studying this stuff, it's basically my beat as a journalist is, like, hanging out with conspiracy theorists as a subculture, as a weird subculture. Like, in America, there's always been kind of like a – there's been right-wing conspiracy theorists. And then in the 60s and 70s, there were more, like, left-wing conspiracy theorists. You know, I went to school in Santa Cruz, which is Uh a very hippie – Yeah. I'd experience a very uh, leftist form, you know, and I think of that like, um, although I guess it's interesting now with, you know, because the, there is an Alex Jones, Richard Linklater crossover, but I think mm-hmm. about it like, remember the JFK guy in uh, Slacker? Yeah. Like that's, that's traditionally what I've thought of when I thought of conspiracy theorists, but right. I don't know if things have shifted or if 
the the right just has a a, a larger uh, bully pulpit at this point. You know, I think it's probably a reflection of how America's truly swung to the right. I mean, perhaps most of the people I know and hang out with aren't. I would not consider right wing, but I think like the prevailing, even among the left, the p- people that consider themselves to the left or liberal, like I think their beliefs or ideology is more like centrist you know it's like left on social issues but still like very much like corporate capitalism maybe libertarian almost. yeah oh yeah so it's like things have become redefined in the last few years i mean definitely like the reagan counter-revolution and the moral majority have helped you know basically like the right wing i think has had like a concerted political project over the last however many years it's been since vietnam war to shift america to the right to the point where it's like even like the weird counterculture stuff like conspiracy theorists who i meet who like basically are like hippies except they're they love trump yeah <laughs> you know it's so bizarre he's really redefined the playbook of everything yeah. there's just so many things that just don't absolutely don't make any sense in context right down to like who he is as a person mm-hmm. and that he's considered a, a charismatic leader a charismatic yeah. and likable guy yeah so when you say you um, hang out with conspiracy theorists, I'm like, I'm very curious what your role is in, in those relationships. I mean, obviously, most of these people at this point know that you're you're covering that, that you're writing books, that maybe you're being a skeptic to some degree. You know, I find with most people, just in general, first of all, they just seem to be kind of happy to be talking to a journalist and they don't necessarily and they, they kind of they might Google you. They might not. But they're kind of pretty forgiving as far as like. If you, like, present yourself, like, I just want to have a conversation with you. You're not going undercover. No. I definitely feel like I am undercover at times when somebody's completely ridiculous. Like, like this, my latest book, uh, Satan Goes to the Mind Control Convention. I spent a lot of time with this doctor who's a conspiracy theorist who promotes and uh, practices really destructive forms of therapy, like uh, recovered memory therapy and hip hypnotizing people and making them believe that they have they were kidnapped by space aliens and raped and probed and stuff so like satanic panic, panic exactly yeah. and um you know very hurt people you know i talked to some of his victims and he's the kind of guy that i would expect would <laughs> would google me and realize that he shouldn't be talking to me but so i definitely felt like i was undercover and not wanting to blow my blow my cover when like when i met him and when i talked to him on the phone and stuff but i really try to be honest and balanced anyways just because there are a couple times where i've like lost my cool and written really snarky mean things about people that i just thought were genuinely bad people and and i never ended up feeling good about it i interviewed a flat earther and it was more of like an hl Mencken bromide than a piece of like objective journalism or like it's changed a little bit over the years but the more classic vice model Mm -hmm. just sort of hey look at this idiot exactly (laughs) which is like you know i'll I'll go on and watch i'll watch some flat earth videos on youtube just Uh because like i I think it's interesting to watch a group of people try to formulate yeah their theories as a group and too often i end up on something that's just like hey look at these dum-dums and it's not no it's not fun no it's not and it doesn't you don't learn anything like i really do believe I mean, I will go after somebody who I think is taking advantage of people or hurting people or getting rich off of people. That's kind of my justification for cranking up the snark. You have to protect the reader, right, when you're exploring a Mm -hmm. a conspiracy theory. It is your job to sort of 
give them a compass of what's real. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you, going back to this guy I was just talking about, uh, he um, did not take my story well. And, you know, I was getting threats and I ended up, a bunch of conspiracy theorists got together and decided that I was a, a shill for Israeli intelligence, mostly based on the fact that my initials were similar to some other guy's initials who they thought was a shill for Israeli intelligence. That's the play, right? Like that's the that's like the fake news play. The fake yeah. news play is this is here's a bad story. Mm-hmm. It must be from a malicious organization that's spreading lies because yeah. we don't like the content. Well, the way it got there was um, one of the, like the leading lights of. Uh, the flat earth people he's really into flat earth and he's really into uh like wing chung and he's really into uh holocaust denialism <laughs> like those are his like Sounds big like things a great dude yeah really awesome <laughs> so i asked this other guy i'm like so do you believe that the holocaust happened and he's like well you know he's like mr science all of a sudden i'm not gonna take anything for uh, granted i would have to go go to auschwitz and conduct some tests and see the move is i can't prove anything mm-hmm. therefore nothing is true right you know which is obviously just a justification of bad ideas and so he's like real pissed off that i like called him a nazi or crypto nazi or compared him to a nazi so he got back at me by saying well you're a jew <laughs> Basically, touche. Oh man! Have you ever listened to Ono Ross and Carrie that podcast? Mm-mm. It's a skeptic podcast. They go deep. Yeah, they did like a big thing on Scientology, flat Earth, like all this stuff. But like, they actually like sort of infiltrate to some degree. Oh, that's cool. It's a whole sort of like undercover cop thing of like you know, it's the Donnie Brasco thing of mm-hmm. like getting into deep. Oh yeah, you must go a little crazy when you're well into this world. Yeah, you know, I think I have some distance. You know, from it, I just... You consider yourself a skeptic? Yeah. I mean, I... A cynic. <laughs> I mean, or, you know, just yeah. have a bad attitude. I mean, like, that's always... That's how I got into journalism. That's why I always liked it is because I always feel like I have a ability to be present yet be one step removed. Do the critical to, eye. Yeah. It gets weird because, like, I can't help doing these stories, like, become kind of attached to people as long as they're nice to me and I'm nice to them. And it's like... You know, 99% of the time, that's an awesome thing. But every once in a while, like, I've been hanging out with, like, Second Amendment activists and, like, militia people in Pennsylvania lately, yeah. and um, that's, that's legitimately scary. It is, you know, the militia scene in Pittsburgh is not, or in Pennsylvania, it's not in Pittsburgh, but in, like, rural Pennsylvania, we traditionally don't have the militia It's not branch division. No, it's not, like, out west, yeah. Idaho. Like, it's not like that. But you still do find yourself in positions where it's like, I'm surrounded by gun- guys with guns, and I don't know who any of them yeah. are. And, these and, are and I'm guns. far away from everything. Yeah. Um, so, you you know, and then you kind of make friends with people, and then it's like you kind of forget where they're coming from, and then they start posting on Facebook. Because they all want to be your friends on Facebook. Because it's 2019, you got to be friends with everybody on Facebook. So it's like they start posting all about how, how sense up Pittsburgh is passing uh, common sense gun control me- legislation. Um, they realize that they should have no faith in government and they're going to teach their kids how to shoot and stock up an ammo. And I'm like, that's really scary. How did you get in with Lucian? I went to Chicago. to. Um, there's an organization I discovered called the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, which is a professional. Yeah. It, and it has STD in the initials, which is hilarious. I learned about them. Basically, they promote like the satanic panic stuff, like, like the recovered memories and the the ritual abuse and it's weird because they go out of their way to separate themselves from it in 
like in their literature. Hmm. But to a man, anybody who asks about it, they're fully on board with the crazy stuff. And um, so I went there to try to like check out the conference. I met that doctor, Colin Ross, who I was talking about a little bit ago, who promotes this stuff. Excuse me. I tried to get in the conference, and they just wouldn't let me in, which is the first time I've ever like showed up at a conference and say, I'm a journalist. I want to tell the world about your great ideas. Literally because you didn't get a press pass, or did they like know a thing about you? I think that they are so keyed up because sure. they've been bitten so many times in the past that and I had like the former president and like one of the founders of the organization like like uh yeah. you know going to them on my behalf and asking I bet it's like writing a furry convention you know or like <laughs> yeah. or the gathering of the juggalos you're just actually, like actually the furry convention here the anthrocon is the only other conference I've gone to where they were like no we yeah. can't if you're there a, a journalist covering it like mm-hmm. you, you very well might have bad intentions in there exactly eyes. so it's like you can buy a pass and so Anthrocon, the pass was 25 bucks, so, but I'm not going to spend $250. Sure. But so I was there and then it's like, so what do you do? You, you go hang out at the bar and try to talk to people that are attending the conference in the hotel. and You're already there. Yeah, I went there. So it was like, it was in Chicago. And um, I always think I'm like more charismatic <laughs> than I actually am. So it's like, turns out I can't just sit in a bar and talk people up and get them to tell me their life stories. But the Satanic Temple was there doing a doing it like a to protest the conference because you know part of their like one of their core missions is like ending this kind of medical mental malpractice and so i hung out with them and they were awesome and me and lucian hit it off i think at least you know we we were able to like kind of talk a bit about the issue and then you know we continued to talk and sometimes we do podcasts together and uh, on the subject and pretty interesting but yeah so that's how we met somebody in that organization could be in the same way that any other group including the the convention people would be perhaps not cagey but defensive around outsiders the satanic temple i'm just saying once you get like like, satan in the name you know what i mean like yeah people get ideas yeah it's interesting because like they're it's such an open organization and like even just like the collection of particular satanists i met were just like just so happy to go lucky, so glad to be around people that believed stuff they be- believed, you know. And um, and you know, this is very much this organization is very much about public outreach. So I think anybody who goes up to them and is gonna not the impression of Satanists that I had. Um, they they were they were working out of a like a video production studio. Like I think one of the one of the guys co-owned it or something. One of the Satanists, and they were like doing some work, like. You know, they were protesting this event, but they were also, like, there as an excuse to, like, create media. So, like, their version of protest was, like, YouTube videos and, and you know, all different kinds of, like, it was like a multimedia attack. So I was at this this office, the suite or whatever, waiting for Lucian, and I was just – all these people were there. I'm like, these are the most normal people. Give me one good Satanist, you know? And finally Lucian walks in. He's, like, dressed all in yeah. black, and he's got, like – you want an Anton LaVey. Yeah. Or at least, you know, <laughs> someone who would fit in at like industrial night okay. in the, yeah, some yeah. bar in the 80s or yeah. something. Is the book co-written with him? No, no. It's just um, after I, I went to the to the event, uh, to the conference, I pitched the story around and people weren't really interested. Um, and I'm kind of beyond the point of trying to entice people. Like, to publishers? To publish my stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, um, you know, like websites and, and magazines and um, – so then I decided, well, I'll just start writing and see how long it gets. See if I have, like, a book. See if I have a feature, you know. See if I have a blog post. And got to the point where it was, like, half the size of what I would feel 
comfortable publishing. So I um so I created an anthology with like like a half dozen other articles I've written in the last few years that I was pretty happy. They were like dealt with the flat earthers and targeted individuals, which are like it's like a subsect of uh, conspiracy culture where it's like basically people that are paranoid that think Big Brother's after them. A few of these stories and Pizzagate. And I had a, like a cool little anthology. These articles that I had done over the years that I just thought were like one-offs turned out to be kind of like part of like a larger thematic thing that we're all commenting on each other. So I went to like a few s- small indie presses, publishers, and they were like, well, we can't really pay you anything and it's going to take a year and a half to come out. So I'm like, well, I'll publish it myself and hopefully, because it's really hard to find people who... It's not easy to find people that are like victims of recovered memory therapy. So I thought maybe if I had a book and I was able to demonstrate that I'm working on the story and I'm well-meaning that I would kick up some dust yeah. and be able to pursue the story more. So put it out and it's, yeah, no, it's been pretty well received. Do you feel that it's your role in these to debunk things specifically? I haven't really thought about it. I mean, it's, it's to be honest about these yeah. things. So if the core of somebody's beliefs are just flat out wrong you're going to have to like do some debunking in order to like give a complete picture. But the few times like the flat earth story, like I felt kind of compelled to debunk it. I don't know why I think I was just having like a bad attitude that week, but it was like, I don't think it was as interesting as like really giving people the benefit of the doubt and allowing them to tell their stories. You know, obviously this is a very tricky question for a journalist, but especially when you end up sort of maybe almost embedding yourself to some degree, if you meet somebody with a, questionable belief system or somebody who is subscribed to you know very kooky conspiracy theories and you genuinely like the person you know you're uh, does that influence the story no i mean i just really really you know for when i first started doing this decided you know and this is the attitude i have sometimes it's implicit sometimes it's explicit um sometimes i feel like i need to like explain it to my subject you know it's like i say I obviously don't agree or I don't agree with what you're with what you're doing but I think it's interesting and it's my job to let you tell your story yeah. and to be faithful to what you tell me. I've done a few stories like the ISSTD one or this one I did for The Verge called Scam World where I like went undercover among like internet marketers who are like complete rip-off artists. Then I'm like a more in like Greg Palast investigative journalism mode and I don't feel compelled to give anybody a heads up as to like yeah. what I might be up to. Because they're just horrible people and they need taken down. But that's generally not my M.O. Now it's clear that like the rise of all of these conspiracy theories are very much... It's just the domain of the internet, right? And yeah. It, it does become hard to discern the truth, to find legitimate sources. Certainly Facebook has contributed to that in a, in a major way. Right. What were the circumstances that led to the original satanic panic? A couple things. I mean, it was definitely like a confluence of cultural things happening in the culture. Um late 70s, early 80s, mentioned the conservative counter-revolution earlier. And, you know, that was very much a political project. But at the same time, in the air, just among, like, normal folk, there was a sense that, like, you know, I think that among a lot of people, like, culture just went too far one way in the 70s or the 60s. And um, we need to respond to that. So, like, there were things happening in the culture, like, people were you know, like promotion of drugs and then like the social ills that follow drug use, you know, people seeing lives ruined and feeling that they had to do something about that. And then, you know, Christians becoming more political, entering the political sphere, which is, I mean, traditionally Americans were like, American, like conservative Christians were very much, you know, render under 
Peter, what is Peter's or whatever that saying is, yeah. you know? And um, see, under Caesar, what is Caesar's? And, um, you know, so they stayed out of politics. But in the 80s, they entered politics. In the late 70s, they entered politics. Even, like, women's lib and women getting jobs, either because they were empowered or because the economy sucked. Kids were going to daycare centers for the first time. So there were all these, like, kind of cultural things happening that I just think freaked people out. I mean, when we were growing up, this is a, a lesser example of that, but when we were growing up, the story is about razor blades and apples, yeah. normal apples. Like, that was very much at the forefront of public consciousness. Like, the idea uh-huh. that there were just some bad people out there that wanted to do bad things to children. Yeah, you know, like, one of my earliest memories is coming home from, like, kindergarten with this, like, flyer that they sent home and making my mom read it. And, like, according to elementary school, like, hippies were driving around in a van giving children like LSD with like pictures of Mickey Mouse on it. <laughs> and now I think like, really? You think that, first of all, the hippie in the van yeah. thing is hilarious, but also like obvious drugs cost money. And are you going to yeah. waste that on a child? But you know, I mean, it's very much the same, the apples and the razor blades, like the idea that there's this menace that like, doesn't make sense if you're kind of in the, in the consensual reality, but does make sense if you're in like a more paranoid version of reality that, really thinks that evil exists and it wants to hurt you and it's going to find any way that it can. This is particularly problematic and, and it's interesting that it's sort of come back around and, and, and the context that you're looking at and not just from the standpoint of the rise of conspiracy theories but the rise of the Me Too movement, things mm-hmm. like that where like obviously if you're a half decent not shitty person, your initial inkling is to to believe the victims, right? Mm-hmm. I right. mean, you know, you the children, mm-hmm. like you well, the, that's that was that's the name of like one of the big satanic panic books, right? Yeah, is like, we, we believe, believe the, the children, children right? yeah. So like, oh, yeah, I think that, and I think that's a good instinct. But this becomes really murky and problematic when a movement like that happens. Any time that we are urged or forced to like abandon reasoning and cri- critical thinking, that creates an opening for this kind of these kind of dangerous ideas. Like very much, the satanic panic was fueled by a sense that. And it was, it's really a kind of reaction to, or a reaction to the, the fact that for so long people denied the existence of, you know, you couldn't rape your wife, she's your wife, or deny the existence of like incest or child abuse. So then, then it became, you can't question anybody who claims they were raped or claims they were abused, which in general, normal everyday reality, I would say that's a good guideline. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not saying, yeah. you know, there is a small, you know, a narrow kind of subset of claims that need to be subjected to, you know, just critical thought. I understand why this stuff exists. Like, one, I mean, I'm sure that you, somebody who's around a lot of it, understands the appeal of wanting to believe conspiracy theories. But also, when you look at, and this is not conspiracy theory, this is fact, when you look at Jeffrey Epstein, Mm -hmm. when you look at, like, Brian Singer, there there was that documentary about Hollywood a couple years ago. With Corey Feldman. I mean, certainly, obviously, the Catholic Church is perhaps the best example of this, but there is um, institutionalized child abuse, sexual yeah. abuse, molestation happening. So it's a problem we get into when mm-hmm. people are ascribing it to something like some, something stupid like Pizzagate. <laughs> right. It becomes problematic and it, and it kind of lessens the issue in and of itself where there's like there's like an actual thing that we should be addressing. And oh, people absolutely. are wasting their time on these conspiracy theories. Yeah, and I mean, for a long time, the conspiracy theorists were, like, the only people paying attention to this stuff. Yeah. So, which is interesting. And, like, which a lot of these stories I get drawn to because it's, like, is there anything to it? 
like targeted individuals uh, are it's a community of people who like believe that the government is like implanting them or shooting microwaves so they hit them so they hear voices it's always about that like they, yeah. they find a way to find they make these global things about their brain yeah and it was really interesting and it was really kind of tough because not tough but it was a fine needle to thread because they're obviously delusional but the basis of their delusion is like some very basic reality about living in a surveillance state you know you know their their literature they were so glad when like prism was exposed because now they can like quote like democracy now and stuff you know and edward Snowden and, and chelsea manning and it's like yeah those facts are true facts but what you're saying is not true and it's not always like a great leap between the two things but i like with the going back to the ISSTD and these doctors like they say that you have to believe the victim all the time or else you don't care about the victim but the fact of the matter is it's like these people don't care about the victim <laughs> they're exploiting the victim they're creating a victim with their like malpractice and it's tra traumatic like it's been studied you know if you believe that you've been abused and taken up in spacecrafts and stuff that isn't traumatic in and of itself so Maybe, like, you didn't experience this kind of crazy trauma before you went into therapy, but now you're experiencing it. Recovered memories, that is a thing that exists. I mean, like, people do have things happen to them in their youth that they, they suppress, and therapy can bring it out. Well, not really, no. I mean, people do, there, do tend I, to repress trauma. No, it's been kind of, it's been disproven, like, it's been studied, and the things that these, the people that promote recovered memories, the things that, the studies they say back them up, does don't actually back them up there are weird things that happen to memory and there are things weird things that happen in trauma uh people go through traumatic events susan clancy wrote two books one called the trauma myth which has mm -hmm. an unfortunate title and another one which i can't remember Not each one today. yeah <laughs> you know and it's like basically how um she demonstrates the problems with memory and how like people that she studied people that like were raped or abused as a child that did not repress it. There's like not a no novel like mental process called repression that like records things and hides it in the brain. Huh. But you forget about it, even though it's horrible. You know, it's like maybe maybe it wasn't horrible at the time. This happens a lot. Something happens to you, and in your young mind, it's not horrible at the time. But as yeah. you develop, you realize it was horrible, and that's where the trauma comes from. The Michael Jackson documentary, mm -hmm. I think, does it good. Yeah. Have you you've watched that? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. I have only been able to make it through the first part. Like, I have to... It's like the R. Kelly thing, you know? Like, I have to, like, watch it in stages. Yeah. But, totally. I, but I think one of the things it does really well... There, there's a moment in the first one where one of the boys parents are talking about going on tour with them and they would stay in a suite and the suite the, the rooms got further and further away from each other the ones that parents were staying in and i think what they do a really good job of is generally when you hear a story about something like michael jackson from the outside it's like he's a monster and and i do certainly believe them in this case and, and what he did is is horrible but i guess they kind of do a, a good job of explaining how it's kind of a slippery slope for him yeah and how he was able to justify it in his mind. Yeah, and even the kids, their experience was like, they weren't hurt at the time by, like, the fact that, like, this man was doing these horrible, weird things to them, but, like, the fact that he would do that and then turn around and give some other kid attention. And he'd be like, well, what about me? You know, it's like, aside to that experience that in their, like, limit, in the child's limited experience, you know, seems like a good thing. But obviously it's not... That doesn't mean it's not demonstrably horrible. That yeah. means that, like, the effects come on later and they're a lot more, you know, it's a lot more confusion in the mind, like, what's 
bad, what's good, what hurt, you know, why am I experiencing this, you know, why, this tra- you know, like, why am I a dysfunctional adult? Which, you know, I know I've talked to, like, abuse victims that, like, did not connect the dots between their childhood abuse and their adult dysfunction until well later yeah. in life. You know? But I think part of it, I think evolved to be able to compartmentalize things sure that in order for me to continue just going through life you know there's a million shitty things happening to us all the time like we've got to we've got to find ways to sort of to put them off you know to not have them always at the front of our mind or else we're just going to end up like you know sobbing in a corner somewhere Mm -hmm. i feel like there's a great gulf between what how people understand and conceptualize their feelings and experience and what goes on with their life and kind of like what a um what's actually kind of been studied and (laughs) proven you know The repression thing is a perfect example because it's a thing where, like, people that study memory, like, there's no question in their mind that that repression doesn't happen. There are things that kind of look like repression that you can convince yourself is repression. But the narrative of, like, repressed memories, it makes a lot of sense. So having having a breakthrough one day in therapy where you realize you were molested when you were five, that's not a real thing? No, no. Like the like. Oh my god! I have this complete recall yeah. of of this event that I had. Like how it happens generally um, is a therapist wants to go there. Like a person goes into therapy, and it's usually this dynamic of like a young woman and an older man. This is like the, th- the older the man, man is the therapist. therapist, and the young woman is like you're looking for a knight in shining armor or whatever. It's very like infantilizing or you know very yeah. very gross so like a woman will go into therapy and be like i'm i'm bulimic or i'm depressed or i'm cutting myself and the doctor will be like well those are signs of childhood sexual abuse or satanic ritual abuse or something and then she'll say well i haven't really experienced any of that yeah. and then they'll go well sure you did you know and then then they'll work with them they'll uh Sometimes use hypnotism. I don't know if, or hypnosis. I don't know if that's used much anymore. But like guided imagery. Uh, one woman I talked to was given these tapes to re- listen to all the time, over and over, like in her Walkman as she was like going going to work and between work and school and stuff. That were like visualization exercises of like satanic ritual abuse scenarios. And then like once you start thinking about this stuff all the time yeah. and you're reinforcing it in therapy and everybody around you in the therapeutic setting, you know maybe you're in like a a group like a uh, like a one of those therapy groups, whatever they're called, and like and other people are having this experience. You start to think about this stuff, and then you start to kind of like mm-hmm. fantasize about it, or you know. And then your doctor's like, "No, that's not a fantasy. That's a covered memory. You know, concentrate on that." And then, like after six months or a year of this, you're in you're in therapy. Then you have a breakthrough, and you remember exactly what happened, but. It wasn't a breakthrough through like just talking to you about your past yeah. and like some kind of like Freudian like word association thing. It was it was like it was concerted effort. Yeah, it reminds me of like the psychic thing of did your husband's name start with a, a consonant or like <laughs> yeah, what does the color blue mean to you? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Like it's exactly. you know the, the human mind is is designed to make connections between things. Exactly. Do you need to take a break from this stuff? I mean, you're again, you're in it a lot. No. No, this is just what I love to do. Um, and, and I haven't really seen anything too horrific. There have definitely been times where, like, I've, I've thought, you know, I need to lock the door, <laughs> you know? You know, like, like I wonder if my, my personal safety's You're making know, enemies. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't, you know, I never... There's one guy that I hear from all the time who, like, 
he's like he's kind of like a young wannabe Alex Jones. You know, he has a YouTube channel where he like, you know, every morning he gets up and gives like the crackpot news of the day, and he's got a lot of followers. And then like whenever I, I think whenever he needs like to like increase the GoFundMe a little bit, he'll like tweet the article I wrote about him, and it'll be like this son of a bitch is saying all these horrible things about me. And then like I'll get like weird tweets and weird like contacts on my contact form on my website and stuff so it's like that guy sucks but mostly you know i do keep it fair and i do you know I've, a lot of the stuff i've written about i definitely thought that the people would read it and go wow you're my enemy but you know then i always hear back you know yeah you were fair you treated me well you treated me better than any other journalist would have i've been lucky so far i guess there you go, though. It's Joseph Flatley, somebody I know from my Engadget days many, many years ago. Recorded that one on a recent trip to Pittsburgh. His new book, Satan Goes to the Mind Control Convention, is out now. You can find it on his page at LennyFlatley.net. He also has a new book called The Finders coming out soon. Thanks to him. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or on Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr, that's riylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And that's about all we got for this week. So stick around because we're going to be back in just about another week with another episode of RIYL.